A wise man builds his life on Jesus' instructions, like a house built on a solid foundation. By tuning in today, you are pouring into your life. This message is part of the teaching provided by House on the Rock Fellowship, a church caring for the Miami Valley region. Before you listen, be sure to access the notes in the download section of the message page. Have a Bible ready. Thank you for being our guest. Parents, can you relate to this scenario? Uh, the kids have been out trick-or-treating, and they have brought in a ton of goodies. The bags are full of sweets. They are ecstatic. You're ecstatic that they're ecstatic. And sure, you might go through and do the daddy tax thing where you pull out maybe one of these or one of these, the mommy. I don't know. If, is there a mommy tax when it comes to trick-or-treat candies? If it's Reese's Cup, okay, if there's Reese's Cups and there's a mommy tax, okay. But the kids say, hey, can I have, can I have some? Yes, you may, but don't eat too many. We don't want your belly to get sick. I won't, I won't eat too many. And then you go about your business. You go doing those things and you look over and they say, I'm not eating too many. I don't want my belly to get sick. And so they continue to enjoy the sweets and they enjoy the sweets and they enjoy the sweets. And then at that pivotal moment, you hear it. Mommy, Daddy, I don't feel so good. And you become an Olympic hurdlist as you clear the sofa, as you sweep up this child whose complexion has become white as snow, as your complexion has become white as snow. You are now holding this kid like he's a super soaker, about ready to let leash on everything, that that which is hidden might be revealed, and you are praying as you are aiming that kid at the toilet, that you can get there in time. As something that was sweet has become bitter. I say that with purpose. Because while the gospel of Jesus is sweet, it does contain a bitter truth. A truth that we're going to unpack today. If you haven't been able to journey with us uh, for the last uh, couple months, we've been opening up John's apocalypse, the revelation. Not because we're looking for a prophetic calendar by which we can discern the times, but so that we can hear and see Jesus revealed and the message that the Holy Spirit has for the church. Be faithful. Be faithful. You can go to whoishouseontherock.com and get caught up. I would encourage you to take out your message guide that's inside your notes. Last week, we began to read and to hear about judgments that are coming upon the earth as seals are, are being opened, calamities unleashed, systems of evil that are coinciding and working together to oppress and to conquer and to dominate. There is no promise of peace. It's just hell and war on earth. Leading us to this moment that the Bible describes as the great day of the Lord. Well, John has let us catch our breath and now we're going to jump right back into it. 
And I will go relatively quickly if you're in the first gathering through a bunch of uh, the content because I want us to make sure we have enough time when we get to Revelation 11. So would you please take out your copy of God's Word? We're in Revelation 8. Revelation 8, you can follow along with the verses up on the screen And I'm going to take these in chunks. I'm not going to skip over verses. I want you to hear and see and let your imagination run with what John has crafted here by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we want to make sure that we focus on what John wants us focusing on. Revelation 8, I'm going to start in verse 6. Now seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. These were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up. All grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet. Something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened. A third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. He is echoing the plagues that were brought against Egypt. He wants us to have that story in the back of our imagination. As God brought plagues and judgment upon then the greatest empire that the world had ever seen, Egypt. But a nation that was not repentant, a nation that was not submissive. And so God poured out plague upon plague upon plague. That's the language he's using as as these trumpets blow. Hail and fire and blood and water and all of creation is growing Groaning, And you notice that there's a bit of a shift. Last week, it was a fourth died, a fourth perished, a fourth fell to. Well, there's an intensity now in judgment. It's a third here. It's a third there. It's a third that are dying. The judgments continue. Revelation 9, verse 13 And then I looked and I heard an angel crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. At the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. The fifth angel blew his trumpet. I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. They were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. 
They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or the green plant or any tree. Only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And then their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Verse 7. The appearance of the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he's called Apollyon. Carrying the, the, the plague theme forward, he now sees an army in the shape of locusts, demonic locusts. Now for us, locusts really don't bring a lot of fear or incite a lot of worry, but back then in the ancient Near East, an army of locusts would wipe everything out. If, if you're a farmer, it would take all of your crop, all of your harvest. It would lay waste to land. And yet these are demonic. They, they almost sound like another invading army that people need to worry about. Torturing those who are not sealed. This is a phrase played forward from last week. Those who are marked as followers of Jesus Christ. People want to die, but they won't be able to die. What he's doing is he's saying, these are the stuff of nightmares. It's not about knowing what the crown means and what the breastplate means. It's about seeing this is your nightmare unleashed on earth. And people want to run and hide and die from it. As judgment continues to escalate. He continues, the monsters continue. The nightmare intensifies. Revelation 9 verse 13. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. Saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet. Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day, the month and the year, were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. This is the, how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lions' heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. By the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouth. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads. And by means of them they wound. What is all of this about? This is pretty intense. And it's really hard for us as modern minds with modern images to understand what John is working at. 
for people who heard this, they understood very clearly what John was saying. So I'm going to let an expert be an expert. Uh, N.T. Wright in his book, Revelation for Everyone, helps us understand what John's getting at. He's talking about something that's happening at the Euphrates, which was a river. But it was a river that everyone in the Roman Empire would have known well of. And there's a reason for it. Imagine that your country might suddenly be under threat from a fierce and ruthless enemy whose army is even now amassing on the frontier, ready to advance and swallow up defenseless towns and cities in its path. How many of you grew up in the Cold War where you would hide underneath your desks and practice bunker drills and attack drills? You guys remember some of that stuff? All right, yeah, okay. That political and military nightmare has haunted Western Europe, and now in our time, the entire Western world, since some while before the time of Jesus, when American president refers to an axis of evil, referring to several countries in the Arab world of the Middle East and beyond, he's not playing on the fears of people, most of whom couldn't even identify those countries on a map. He's awakening much older echoes. For half the 20th century, Western Europe and Northern America looked at the Iron Curtain across Europe and imagined uncountable armies waiting on the other side, ready to invade in the cause of communism. Once the Berlin Wall fell, it's not difficult to replace the traditional enemy, Russia, with a new one, largely Muslim Arab countries. But Cold War fears, too, are echoes of a much earlier nightmare. In the 15th and 16th century, Central Europe was gripped by the fear that the Turk, in other words, the armies of the Turkish Empire, would continue what, the, what, continued what seemed to be a relentless advance. You see, in the end, they'd stop just short of Austria. And while Western churches were struggling over the questions of the Protestant Reformation, many of Europe's rulers kept one eye on the eastern horizon, Internal religious revolt was one thing. Attack from the east would be far worse. And so it was, too, in the days of the Roman Empire. The ancient northeastern frontier of the land of Israel had notionally been the great river Euphrates. When the Romans swept through the Middle East 60 years or so before the birth of Christ, the upper reaches of the Euphrates became their border, too, against the legendary empire of Parthia, which stretched at its height across modern Iraq, Iran, and Afghanistan as far as the Indus River in modern Pakistan. So when John sees in his vision four angels tied up by the great river Euphrates, ready to be released and to lead their massive armies into battle, everyone from Jerusalem to Rome and beyond knew what this meant. It was their worst political and military nightmare. Before this, we learned about these systems of evil, these four horsemen, where there was a culture of conquest and of war that never led to peace, of economic oppression that always led to death. But what we see now is when evil is let loose, it receives its own judgment. If you go about conquering, there's always a threat of being conquered. If you go about oppressing, there is this very big reality that you will become oppressed. 
that the judgment of evil, so much is it in God standing upon Mount Olympus with a lightning bolt, waiting to zap the fun out of you, is that your own choices bring about your own judgment and calamity. So what John sees are visions of invasion, of suffering and death, released by God. This is what the world looks like when there is no obedience to the sovereign king of kings. And it's a message that is applied to Rome and applied to the 15th and 16th century. It's applied to the 20th century. It applies to today. It's not that he's talking about one specific army in one specific time, in one specific age. I remember my dad uh, reading Late Great Planet Earth, Hal Lindsey's book, where he took Revelation and, and read it. It's, it's a code. You guys remember that book? And, and when you get to Revelation 8 and 9, he starts talking about the locusts. Clearly, those are Apache helicopters, right? You remember the Apache helicopters? They sound like chariots. <laughs> That's what that means because they've got, they've got the missiles and the stingers, stinger missiles, scorpion stingers. That's what John's talking about. Yeah, that's what John's talking about. No, 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 no. He's talking about a culture of conquest and domination and war and oppression that's just as applicable now as it was 2,000 years ago. It is a nightmare on earth. It is an ever-increasing nightmare on earth. But notice that the judgments are limited. This isn't a complete annihilation. It's a quarter here. It's a third there. There's still grace. There's still a call for repentance. There's still long-suffering and patience at the hand of God. But this is the seriousness of sin. This is the call for major surgery. This is something that cannot be left alone. So we can assume then that in the presence of hell on earth, the nations will come to repentance. We can assume in the midst of so much economic calamity and conquest and war and, and, and racial fears and all these things just compiling one upon the other. Surely the disease is raining down and fears of other nations working their way in and, and murder hornets and all these things. We, we can believe then that the nations will come to repentance, right? Right? Surely hell on earth will invite people to receive the grace of God, right? Right? This is what he says, though. This is Revelation 9, verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works, the works of their hands, or give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze, stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor do they repent of their murders, or their sorcerers, sorceries, of their sexual immorality, or of their thefts. They did not repent. Hell on earth, and they did not repent. 
They clung to their idols that cannot save. They clung to their hate. They clung to their sexual immorality. They clung to their oppression. They clung to the very thing that's bringing upon their own destruction. What John is doing is he's making a claim about the human condition. And he's saying, it's not good. In the back of our minds, he's inviting us to think about Pharaoh and to think about Egypt and the ten plagues. Plague upon plague upon plague upon plague. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not repent. And John is now playing that forward. Believe it or not, as bad as things get out there, we will choose our idols any day. Those on earth refuse grace and they become their own destruction. It leads us to ask, what saves then? Last week we asked ourselves, who can stand in the face of God's judgment? This time John is inviting us to ask, well then what does save? If it's not all these calamities and these hardships, if that doesn't lead us to repent, what does save us? If we're thinking about Egypt, if we're thinking about the ten plagues, what is it that actually brought about the liberation and the freedom of people? There's the Passover lamb. There's the sacrifice and the blood that set the people free. So John then gives us a dramatic pause and he lets us process and he shows us a better way. I'm going to start reading in chapter 10, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and sworn by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, earth and what's in it, the sea and what's in it, that there should be no delay. But in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants and prophets. Let me catch you up right here. Um, John is being presented as a prophet. He is now going to step into the prophetic role. Believe it or not, everything before this is merely an introduction to get us to this point in the book. Now is when we're going to hear the actual prophecy, the actual message. The fulfillment of brings about the great day of the Lord. And so like a prophet, he's shown things that he's, he's not allowed to talk about. He's, he's not allowed to communicate. These seven thunders, he's saying, you're not allowed to tell people that. There's things that you know that other people don't know. I was going through my books in my library because I was prepping that and going over that. I said, wait a second. I've, 
I actually sat underneath a minister growing up who believed that God had told him what the hidden messages were in the thunders. And he wrote this great prophecy that the end of the world was coming in 2008 and that, you know, Jesus had shown him things that, you know, no other people hadn't seen. He was also arrested for tax evasion and doesn't minister anymore. So there's that piece. (laughs) But what is it? We're at this, this turning, if you will. This climatic moment in the book. Verse 8, then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, go, take this scroll that's open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and I told him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was as sweet in my mouth as honey. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And then I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Like the prophets of old in the Old Testament, like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, here, take this, eat it, internalize it. Make it your own, but you need to understand it will be sweet to your tongue and it will make you sick to your stomach. This message is sweet, but it's also bitter. And then he said, you need to prophesy now. And he says, to many peoples, but it's not all. To the nations and languages and the kings. That fourfold formula is used seven times throughout the course of the book. Up until this point, it's always referred to the church proper. Those are the ones who have come out of from many peoples and from many languages and from many tongues. But now things are going to shift. What is it that brings the fulfillment of kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? What is the message, the salvation for some people? Revelation 11. Now, for those of you who know a little bit about the book of Revelation, it's pretty the, probably the freakiest book in the whole book of the Bible, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy. But if you had to pick one chapter, which is the craziest chapter in the whole book of Revelation, it's probably Revelation 11 because of what it talks about and how people have guessed about and tried to figure out the code behind what's going on in chapter 11. John, now stepping up as the prophet, brings the message that 10 chapters of introduction has been preparing us for. We've seen visions of Jesus on the throne. We've heard messages to the church to be faithful. We've seen the nightmare of hell on earth and how that doesn't bring about repentance. And then John receives this message. And then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar And those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Look here. There is no temple in Jerusalem anymore. Temple had been sacked by this point. 
Much of Jerusalem had been sacked. There is no physical temple proper. But for people who know the message of the New Testament, for the followers of God, they understood that they were the temple, that they were the holy city. And so the message is coming that a part of the temple is in God's presence. But there's a part of the temple that for a season will be trampled by the nations. He says it another way. Verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he's doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. There are witnesses, humble witnesses, clothed in sackcloth, who are faithful. It says two. Now we know, don't get hung up on the number two. What's the message of two? Okay. In the Bible, two witnesses is the number needed to confirm the truth of God's message. These are the ones who confirm God's message. And they come like Elijah, and they come like Moses. Elijah and Moses, those are the two big conflicts in the Old Testament. Those are the two big battles. Elijah, who called down fire in his conflict against Jezebel and the false prophets of Baal, who made the rain stop. Moses, who stood up against Pharaoh. So in the Old Testament, these are the two big stories of speaking truth to power, of resisting the empires of evil. And people have speculated, who are these two witnesses? Is Moses and Elijah coming back? Remember the guy I said got arrested for tax evasion? He told us that he and his wife were the two witnesses. Who, who, who is it that, that is, is going to do this? Who are the witnesses? Well, let me ask you in, in this book, who's called to be faithful? Who's challenged? Who is given a message that is sweet and bitter? Who are the lampstands in the beginning of the book? We've been told this great story of God's people and God's purpose. And we know and see at an increasing level that there is a dark dragon behind the scenes that uses empires and imperial forces to bring about its will. But we know that there will be a harvest. Who is the witness here? Before I read this, I need you to put on a pair of glasses. I need you to see through these next few verses the message of Jesus' suffering. I need you to remember what happened to Jesus' body, his Passion Week, how his body was dragged before the empire of the time, Rome, how it was tortured and it was beaten, how Jesus was killed. 
Jesus was put in the tomb. And no doubt there was celebration because that, that instigator from, from Galilee was done away with. How three days later he rose again. He was witnessed by many. And he ascended upon a cloud. The great earthquake. And those rose from the grave. You need to have that in the back of your mind. Have that in the back of your mind. And these next few verses might do something that you didn't think that they could do. What saves the nations? Revelation 11, verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. For those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. They stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud. And their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in an earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. What brings the nations to God? Who is the instrument that God will use? This whole book is about the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of Jesus. That Jesus might be seen and made manifest. His kingdom come, his will be done. So John shows us how it will happen. In your notes, write this down. The revelation of Jesus comes from the suffering love of the church. The revelation of Jesus comes from the suffering love of the church. Who are the lampstands? He says, these are my lampstands in the beginning of the book. Who are called to be lampstands? Who, what is the one who stands in the darkness to keep the monsters back? Who are called to shine bright? It was the churches. We learned, what's a faithful witness? A faithful witness is someone who worships Jesus only, who lives the kingdom and endures the suffering that come along with it. Suffering unto death. After all, a witness is a martyr. And as we work through those letters, 
How does a church burn bright? To confront the darkness, to confront the monsters. We learned about words like love and faithfulness, discernment and suffering, anticipation, courage, and humility. Go back to those two messages. Hear the call to the churches again. Suffering love. To live like Jesus. To die like Jesus. It is sweet. And it is bitter. This is how Jesus conquers the beast. The body of Christ lays down its life. This is why John writes to the churches that we would learn to be faithful because faithfulness matters. Faithfulness matters. And here's the hard truth. Are you ready? We are not capable of that level of sacrifice. Our idea of sacrifice is showing up to church on time, maybe twice a month. Some might say things are getting darker. Maybe because the church is getting dimmer. How do we change that? In your notes, three ideas. I think it calls for something sweet. And that something sweet is scripture. That something sweet is, is meditating on and reading and, and resting in all of God's promises. The reason that John is able to write the way he writes and present the things that he gives us is because his mind is so saturated with the promises and the words of the Old Testament. He lives this stuff. This is why he was able to stand up as a faithful witness in the midst of the Roman Empire, calling other churches to be faithful. Oh, because he loved God's word. Do you have a regular habit of getting into God's word? of reading it and memorizing it and sharing it and living it, just chewing on it and savoring it. The sweet, sweet words of God. Holding on to those hope and promises. Us going forward is going to call for something sweet. But it also calls for something sweet and bitter. And that's serving with others for others. It's serving with others for others. Jesus said, let your light shine, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. 2020 has given the church ample opportunities to step up, to serve in new ways, in different ways, in ways that really matter, in the ways that people really need. Are you regularly serving within your church? How? How are you gathering with the saints to be a part of proclaiming the message, to worship Jesus only, to live out the kingdom? Regularly invest your time and your energy to help your church shine bright. Something sweet, something bitter. You're going to have to learn to count the costs. But also something that's just bitter. And that's the stories of persecution. The stories of persecution. It was 
true then and it's true now. Our family members around the world are faithfully living out the story to death. And instead of hiding from those stories, we need to hear those stories and pray those stories and take those stories in and let those stories change us. I'd like to read to you an example. Here's something, just an example. The young Ethiopian man came to faith. His community turned against him. But he remains committed to following Christ. Kofi grew up as a Muslim, but when an evangelist introduced him to Christ, he was instantly drawn to the saving grace of God and became a Christian. As Kofi grew in his faith, he began sharing it with others, which angered local mosque leaders. They brought him before the local Islamic court. And when Kofi told them that he could never give up his new faith, the leaders decided to set up a trap for him. Sending a mob out to the farmland of Kofi's brother claimed that there was a property line dispute. When Kofi appeared, the crowd shouted, This is the enemy of Allah. And they began to beat him. His left hand was so badly injured that the doctors had to amputate it. Pray for Kofi, who told Christians who visited him, I am happy not only to give my hand for Jesus, I am ready to give my life for faith in Jesus Christ. You got to let that one hurt you. You got to let that one make you a little sick to your stomach. It calls us to faithfulness in ourselves. Yeah, let that mull over inside of you. Visit uh, www.persecution.com, the, the voice of the martyrs. Read these stories. Read these stories with your children. Help them be aware that following Jesus is sweet and it's bitter. That this is what we are doing. And there's a season that we are moving into where it's going to call more and more from us. Hear it another way. This is from the book of Hebrews chapter 13. I'm going to read from verse 1 to verse 6. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Hear that? Remember those who are in prison. Those who are being mistreated. Since you also are in the body. Remembering those who are being persecuted those who are having to count the cost, who are being faithful witnesses and suffering in tragic ways as a result. You need to develop practical ways of living in these three areas. A sweet habit in God's word, serving others, practicing service, and keeping the stories of the church in front of you. 
John now comes to the end of part one in the book of Revelation. It kind of folds right in half. And at the very center of his book, as you can imagine, it doesn't end with judgment. It doesn't end with despair or destruction. He gives us a beautiful picture of the day of the Lord. Let me read it for you. Revelation 11, starting 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, Maybe read this with me. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, again, read it with me. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. What an important message to someone like Coffee, to our other brothers and sisters who are suffering. We will suffer. That's the story. The revelation of Jesus comes through the suffering love of his church. But don't miss this part. There is a promise. There's a time, a rewarding for your servants, your prophets and saints, and for those who fear your name, both small and great. So on behalf of Jesus, on behalf of the church, on behalf of coffee, let's run the race. The race will be bitter, but the reward will be sweet. Jesus said there are two ways to build your life. A wise man builds his life on God's instructions, like a house on a strong foundation. For more teaching from this ministry, go to whoishouseontherock.com. If you don't have a church, please consider being our guest on a Sunday morning. Again, visit whoishouseontherock.com for more information.